paperback writer. When we think of London in the 1960s, we inevitably use the adverb swinging. Certainly for the first half of that decade, England's capital was the place to be. The world's biggest pop bands were tirelessly composing hit after hit after hit. And as the Beatles, the Rolling Stones and the Kinks gave the world new songs to sing, the fashion world seemed to gravitate to Soho's Carnaby Street. Eagerly pursuing all the latest fads and trends Cause he's a dedicated follower of fashion Designers Mary Quant, Marion Fole and Sally Tuffin dressed Jean Shrimpton, Peggy Moffat and Varushka in miniskirts, patterned tights and T-shaped sweaters. And there to snap them all were David Bailey, Terence Donovan and Brian Duffy, three groundbreaking photographers who shook up the stale look that had so stymied fashion magazines for decades. On April 15th, 1966, Time magazine ran a cover story extolling the invention and vibrancy of the city. It also helped that for the previous few years, British cinema had itself been charting the changes. Perhaps the best example of this was John Schlesinger's Darling, where Julie Christie played Diana Scott, whose meteoric rise to fame began when she was interviewed on the street by a passing news team. Diana soon morphed from a self-conscious and somewhat naive ingenue into a media doyen, and finally a princess ensconced in an Italian palace. Yes, London was no longer the dusty old capital of a fading empire, but a thriving hub of world culture. One can only imagine then what a young director made of it all when he decided to defect from the coals of communist Poland and embrace the white heat of England. By the time Roman Polanski came west, he was already fated as a filmmaker of some note. In 1962, his first feature, Knife in the Water, about a young couple who, looking to go sailing for the weekend, pick up a hitchhiker, became the very first Polish film ever to be nominated for an Oscar in the category of Best Foreign Language. And before that, Polanski had made several original shorts, with some of them winning awards at international festivals, the most startling of which, Two Men and a Wardrobe, is a surrealist vision that concerns two men who emerge from the sea laden with a cupboard. Wandering through a seaside town, they are set upon by the locals and eventually return to the comparative safety of the waters. One of the many brilliant things about it is that it offers no explanation at all for the goings-on, not least of which is how the men came to be carrying the wardrobe, or indeed why the locals attacked them. It may sound odd, but Two Men in a Wardrobe serves as a handy preparation for Polanski's 1965 feature, Repulsion. It begins with an intense close-up of an eyeball. We are so close to it, there is no way we can tell whether it is that of a man or a woman. But from the vantage point of 2015, I can safely say that Polanski was blithely referencing two masterpieces he had most certainly seen. The first would be the opening credits of Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo, where we are treated to images of Kim Novak's face. Her face is passive to the point of being catatonic, but what we hear is unsettling.
Now, unsettling as that may be, it is nothing compared to the originator of that sequence. Louis Bunuel's shocking 1929 masterpiece, Un Chien Andalou. That movie isn't even two minutes old before a razor blade is drawn across a woman's eye, slitting it in two. The gooey macula gel inside, gushing forward like paint splurting out of a tube. If you think I'm stretching for connections here, Polanski explicitly references his sources by making sure that his own directorial credit for repulsion cuts across the eyeball. With the credits ended, the camera pulls back to reveal a somewhat distracted young woman. She is Carol, a beautician, and she is played by Catherine Deneuve, then a young actress best known for her performance in Jacques Demy's wondrous musical, The Umbrellas of Cherbourg. And it is a testament to both Deneuve's talents, as well as Polanski's instincts, that Deneuve had it within her to play so strongly against type. Remember, Deneuve is French, and the movie is set in London, and that means that although her character is English, when Deneuve goes to talk, her voice and speech are halting, and so the casting decision immediately sets Carol apart from everyone and everything around her. Have you fallen asleep? Oh, Oh, I'm sorry. I think you must be in love or something. What polish are you putting on? The usual one, madame. Oh, I'm fed up with it. I feel like a change. Uh, Give me Revlon's fire and ice. Oh, I'll go and get it. In other words, there is a world of difference between our protagonist and the world she inhabits. Now, in the hands of another filmmaker, a backstory would have somehow explained Carol's accent. But, collaborating with screenwriter Gerard Brach, Polanski knew it wasn't needed. In fact, the film offers nothing by way of backstory. Instead, the whole thing unfolds in the here and now, the ever-present, and all we know is what we see. It isn't until the film's final shot that any reference to the past is actually made. So, While other films presented London as an optimistic, energetic city of excitement, Polanski's view was markedly different. Not that he was aiming to make some grandiose statement about London. Instead, he presents what the German expressionist cinema called Ein Kammerspielfilm, a chamber film, a movie that suggests the location for the drama is a reflection, if not an extension of, the protagonist's mental state. I'm running a business here, Carol, not a rest home. You can't just disappear for three days. Are you sure? Well, I mean, you're not in any trouble. No, I'm not. I'm really... But surely you could have phoned. Well, what is it? Mrs. Stuart Taylor wants to see you. All right, I'll be with you in a minute. Carol, I can't help you if you won't tell me what's the matter. Polanski was able to do this by way of Seamus Flannery's magnificent art direction. Flannery managed to stretch the shape and size of Carol's apartment from being familiar into being a phantasmagoria. 
but surpassing Flannery's work was that of cinematographer Gilbert Taylor. By the time Taylor collaborated with Polanski, he had already lit 37 feature films, the most famous of which is undoubtedly Stanley Kubrick's Dr. Strangelove. Now then, Dimitri, you know how we've always talked about the possibility of something going wrong with the bomb. The bomb, Dimitri. The hydrogen bomb. In his autobiography, Polanski recalls having been amazed by Taylor's versatility. Quote, he mostly used reflective light bounced off the ceilings or walls and never consulted a light meter. As the rushes were shown, however, he possessed such an unerring eye that his exposures were invariably perfect. We differed on only one point. Gill disliked a wide-angle lens for close-ups of Catherine Deneuve, a device I needed in order to convey her mental disintegration. I could be a very good friend to you, you know. You look after me and you can forget about the rent. Polanski's cinema is the perfect case for the auteur theory. Given the horrors and catastrophes that have marked his life, it is tempting to regard his films as mirrors of his experience. However, content alone does not make a great filmmaker. What needs to happen is for the content to be fashioned into a shape that is unique to the medium. For that to happen, the director needs to have what Sergei Eisenstein called the film sense. Hitchcock was blessed with that innate understanding, and Polanski has shown similar control. His aesthetic is for a deliberate tempo, referring to rapid cutting as tossing a salad. Similarly, his frame is rarely hectic. While in the early part of his career he did use wide-angle lenses, for over 40 years now he is dispensed with them. Instead, it is his use of location that most effectively secures his goal. More than anything, Polanski's films present a profound sense of claustrophobia. His films predominantly take place within confined settings or simply indoors. Knife in the Water on a Yacht, Cul-de-sac, The Fearless Vampire Killers and Macbeth in remote castles. Rosemary's Baby predominantly in a New York apartment, while Carnage takes place entirely in a New York apartment. The Tenant takes place mainly in a Parisian apartment, and almost all of Death and the Maiden plays out in a windswept house on the South American coastline. Oliver Twist presents London as a warren of decrepit rooms. The ghost remains focused in an isolated house on Martha's Vineyard. Venus in Furs takes place entirely in a Parisian theatre. And finally, The Pianist, where, for long stretches, Wladyslaw Spielmann is hidden by the Polish resistance in rooms that are intended to keep him safe, but gradually turn into spaces of terrifying imprisonment. But brilliant as many of those films are, Repulsion set the benchmark, and it serves as a landmark in not just films set in London, but films that chronicle the onset of madness. Unquestionably, Repulsion is a masterpiece, but amazingly, it's not Polanski's greatest achievement.